you got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5, is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 5, we'll read verses 1 to 6. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, whether they be an actual book or on your phone or tablet or someplace, it'll be on the screen for you as we read together as well. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Matthew writes, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now listen, we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We just started a few weeks ago. We'll be doing this so through Easter. And right now we find ourselves in the Beatitudes section of Jesus' teaching where he begins to unpack for us his vision of what it means to live the Christian life and to become a Christian. Now listen, everybody in the world has some kind of vision, some kind of perspective on what they think Christians are and how to live the Christian life. And so what we're doing is we're trying to make an exchange over these next several weeks together as we exchange our perspectives, our vision, our, the, the understandings that we have for Jesus' understanding of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. And so we're doing so by working our way through the Beatitudes. Last week we saw that we come to God, those who come to God, they come to Christ, they come as humble beggars. They don't have anything impressive about themselves. They don't come to God with their head held high and their hands full, but they come to God with their head bowed and their hands empty. And then God is able to gently raise their head and fill their hands. They come as those who are poor in spirit. And they come as those who are meek. They're not impressed with themselves. Right? And so they don't come before God as trying to show off all of their accolades and accomplishments, but they're really not very impressed with themselves at all, but they're impressed with the spectacularness of God, not their specialness. And so we saw that last week, we come as humble beggars. And this week, we take a look at what Jesus says in verses 4 and 6. Or we'll jump right in. In verse 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, the experience of mourning is something that we're all familiar with, aren't we? We all know what it means to grieve. If you've lived life at all, you've experienced occasions of brokenness, sadness, and grief. And so we all know what it is to mourn, but the kind of mourning that Jesus is speaking of here is a mourning over, in the context in which Jesus is speaking, is a mourning over our spiritual condition. And so in verse 3, when we see that blessed are the poor in spirit, those who come before God as spiritually bankrupt beggars, not having anything to bring to God uh, that will make them acceptable in His eyes, and they, they recognize that, and flowing out of that recognition, they begin to mourn, they begin to grieve, they're saddened by that condition they find in their lives. Listen, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Those who mourn over their spiritual condition. Those who mourn over their sin. See, when we come before God and we recognize that we're spiritual beggars, we don't come before God and try and make deals with Him, right? We don't come before God and try and set up an installment payment plan, right? God will give us zero interest for 18 months, right? We, we don't come before God and just kind of shrug off our sin. We don't come before God and we don't laugh off our sin. We don't come before God and shake, shake, shake off our sin, right? If, if you're under 30, you might know what I'm talking about, um, or if you have a child. Uh, but we don't, we, don't, we don't play those kinds of games with God. We don't negotiate with God. We don't try and strike deals with God. We simply come before God and we mourn. We grieve. We're saddened by the condition of our land, and we're saddened by the condition of our lives. That's what Jesus is speaking about here, a mourning that exists in our lives. And so mourning over those two things. We mourn over the condition of our land. Listen, we mourn over the spirit of our age. 
We live in an age where there's apathy that is rampant within the church and there's all kinds of alternatives to Jesus on every corner. <laughs> right? In addition, not only do we mourn over the spirit of our age, but we mourn over the presence of abortion. Last weekend, on January 22nd, last Sunday, was Sanctity of Life Sunday. And it marked the 44th anniversary of the infamous Roe versus Wade decision in the United States Supreme Court. And since that day, on January 22nd, 1973, there have been 60 million, 60 million infants who have been legally executed in our nation. That's, that's roughly about 3,000 little lives every single day. And we mourn, we mourn the presence of abortion. There's a grief, a sadness that's awakened within the souls of those who see that condition. They grieve over it. Because abortion is completely counter to the gospel. See, abortion says, you die so that I can live. And in the gospel, God says, through Jesus, Jesus says, I will die so you can live. So we grieve that. We also grieve the presence, we mourn the presence of human trafficking as we survey the condition of our land. Listen, in 2015, CNN released uh, an article, an online article in which they called Human Trafficking, the, Next, the New American Slavery. The new American slavery. In the United States alone, there are 3,500 human trafficking cases reported annually. That's roughly 10 children every day who are being taken into the human trafficking industry by force or coercion and forced to do very deplorable things. We mourn the presence of human trafficking in our nation. We mourn the expressions of all kinds of sexual sin, the fatherlessness that is rampant in both urban and rural contexts among those who are ethnic minorities and the poor. We mourn mass shootings and senseless violence. We mourn the presence of systemic racism. We mourn every instance of murder, incest, and abuse. When you look at the landscape of our nation as believers, as Christians, there's, there's reason to grieve. There's reason for our hearts to be rent and broken before God. And Jesus says those who recognize their absolute bankruptcy before God, they mourn the condition of the land in which they live. Not only do they mourn the condition of the land in which they live, they also mourn the condition of their own lives. Right, so it's not just that sin is out there somewhere, but sin is also very active and present right here. And so we mourn not only the condition of our land, but our lives. Like in Romans chapter 7, when the Apostle Paul talks about how the very things that he wants to do, he doesn't do, but the very things he doesn't want to do, he ends up doing because he sees the presence, the law of sin at work in his body, leading him to do things that he doesn't want to do. We mourn over that, we grieve over that, that we are, we are slaves to sin, that we are captive to it and to its desires and to its whims. Even after our conversion, there is still the presence of the flesh within us that is enticing us and tempting us. The world is still pulling us in its direction. Satan, we have an enemy who is still attacking us. And so we mourn the presence of our, the condition of our lives. See, Paul says in Romans 7, it's not that the law of God is bad, it's not that the law of God is imperfect. The law of God is perfect and righteous and just. He says the problem is not with the law, it's with me. And we mourn that. And so we mourn our self-focused, self-centered, and self-directed desires where everything revolves around us. We mourn the harshness at times with which we respond, we respond to those that we care about the most. Do you find yourself in that position? You mourn, we mourn the lack of self-control and the unfaithfulness that we might experience from time to time, the lust, the greed, the bitterness, the hatred. We mourn the malicious thoughts that we have and the harmful that comes out of our mouths. 
See, we not only see sin out there, but we also see sin in here and we are grieved by it. We mourn over it. But listen, we said a couple of weeks ago that what Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount is absolutely upside down to the culture in which we live. And let me, let me just go ahead and press that for a moment because mourning, mourning our sin, mourning our spiritual condition is absolutely upside down in a culture that teaches us to medicate our sin. To medicate our sin. Now, some individuals within our culture would seek to medicate their sin through prescriptions. Others would seek to medicate their sin through distractions. Right? But, but there are many who, they don't mourn, they don't grieve, they're not broken by their sin, but they seek to medicate it because they don't necessarily want to deal with the source. They just want the symptoms to go away. Right? And so there are some individuals who would seek to numb their conscience through prescriptions, whether it be legal drug abuse or illegal drug abuse. And so some of the opioid addiction and prescription pain medicine addiction that exists in our nation is an attempt for some people to medicate the symptoms of their own spiritual condition. The alcoholism and illegal drug abuse that we see within our nation as well as an attempt to medicate the, 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 their conscience to kind of numb. I don't want to feel guilt. I don't want to feel shame. Whether it be something that I've done in the past or something that's been done to me in the past, I don't want to feel it. So if I can just numb my conscience... I'll be okay. I can find comfort there. There are others who not, not, don't numb their conscience, but they ignore it through distractions. Through distractions. And so rather than, rather than, than seeking uh, comfort through prescriptions, they do through distractions, through entertainment, through shopping, through sports, or through hobbies. Listen, some, some of you ladies in the room, a, a, a part of your draw, I'm going to get in trouble, part of your draw to shopping, fashion, and decorating for some is more than simple good taste. For some, it's an attempt not to deal with the reality of the condition of their souls. They can be distracted by the clothes that they're buying, the shoes that they're buying, the, the, the paint colors in the living room or the dining room or the flooring in the kitchen. They can be distracted by all of these things out here and they don't have to deal with the reality of what's in here, of what's in the heart. And so through, for some late women, it, the, the, it's not just simple good taste, it's, it's an attempt to medicate the condition of their souls. For men, it's got to be equal opportunity, right? Some of you men, right? Including myself at times. Our fascination with sports and hobbies is more than simple time to unplug and get away and relax. But for some, their fascination with sports and hobbies is an attempt not to deal with the real condition of their hearts. So if I could spend all of my time, right, clashing with clans and answering the call to duty in video game world, or I can spend all my time right, tracking down fantasy stats or buying toys and tools. I can spend all my time in a, in a stand out in the woods. Or I can spend all my time on the deck of a boat out on the lake. And I don't have to deal with the real realities of my heart and my soul. It's an attempt to distract myself from what's really going on inside. And listen, we live in a culture that just turns up the heat of distractions, don't we? There's a fascination within our culture for smart devices. Okay, so most of us have a phone in our pockets that have more technology in it than the space shuttle did back in the 1980s, right? We have smartphones, we have tablets, we have computers, we have watches now that will buzz and beep and blow up every time somebody texts us, emails us, calls us. Anytime there's an update on a social media feed, right? We can jump on social media and we can look at everyone else's life while not having to deal with our own. There's distractions at every turn. And many people are seeking to medicate their conscience 
numb their conscience, just ignore their conscience through either prescriptions or distractions. Trying to medicate their sin, but it doesn't work, right? Because trying to medicate our spiritual condition, trying to medicate our sin is like this. It's like, like I had a dream the other night, crazy dream. I woke up in the middle of the night with this throbbing headache. And I, this is, this might freak some of you out, right? But I had this dream. And in the dream, it was so vivid that I was, I was in a doctor's office and with my daughter's plastic surgeon, okay, and he diagnosed me with a brain tumor. I don't know how the do- plastic surgeon diagnosed me with a brain tumor. But I woke up with a splitting headache in the middle of the night. And so I have an MRI next week. All right, I'm going to get one. To- I'm just kidding. Maybe I need to. But, right, if, 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 you have these ma- if you begin to develop these massive headaches, right, and you begin to take Aleve and Advil and Excedrin and Tylenol, brand names, generics, BC powder that you dissolve in the water, and you just keep guzzling down pain pills, Right? They only they, they can only do so much whenever you have a tumor growing underneath the surface. And if you never get down to the source, you can try and treat the symptoms all day long. And it will have just increasing, diminishing returns for you in your life. If you never deal with the source. So medicating our sin doesn't work. We can't find the com- lasting comfort there that we're looking for. Jesus says the only solution is to mourn your sin. But in addition, mourning sin is also upside down in a culture that celebrates it. So we live in a culture that either teaches us to medicate it or to celebrate it, not to mourn it. Listen, those who would celebrate their sin, they're not numbing their conscience and they're not ignoring their conscience. Essentially, they're living in denial of their conscience. As they begin to experience conviction of sin, what they're taught is look inside, find those inner desires and celebrate those. That's who you truly are. They don't see themselves, as we said last week, we see ourselves in a culture which teaches us that we're all all all-stars, rock stars, or shooting stars, not fallen stars. And there are some in our culture who would not medicate their sin, but they would celebrate it. A couple of years ago, Lady Gaga uh, released a song entitled Born This Way. And the lyrics of that song are as follows. She says, My mama told me when I was young, we're all born superstars. She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on in the glass of her boudoir. It's a great word, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said, because he made you perfect, babe. So hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far. Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way. Because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. You see, in in a culture that celebrates sin, the only sin that is left is to fail to be true to yourself. There is no objective standard by which behavior is measured. The only standard that you measure it by is are you being true to yourself? Do you love yourself? Do you think that you're beautiful in how you define beauty, not an objective standard of purity or beauty? Right? And so celebrate those things that you find, even if, even if they're not popular, celebrate what you find inside, and that's the path to dealing with the nagging of your conscience, that you deny it. And yet, even that doesn't work, right? And here's why. It's because while celebrating sin in what we're taught to do in our culture, the celebrating of sin may give a little relief for a little while, whether it be in this life or in the life to come. Eventually, it will lead to our destruction. Eventually. It's kind of like trying to break the law of gravity, right? You can only do it for so long. 
before you come crashing down. You don't break the law of gravity, you break yourself against the law of gravity. Right? You can get up into an airplane and fly thousands of feet above the earth, and you can jump out of that airplane without a parachute. And listen, the free fall is going to be daring and delightful, but the impact is going to be destructive. You can only celebrate sin for so long before it will begin to destroy you. So you can't medicate sin and you can't celebrate sin. What Jesus teaches us to do is to mourn it, to be broken over it, to grieve our status before God, our sinful condition. Because Jesus says, while you may seek comfort in medication and while you may seek comfort in celebration, the only place you will find it is in mourning. That's whom the comfort of God is promised to in verse 4. Now, how is it that Jesus, how is it that this comfort of God would come to those who would mourn their sins twofold? First, first, those who would mourn their sin, they would find the comfort of God's forgiveness here and now. Here and now. In 1 John chapter 1, John says that those who confess their sins before God, that God is faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. In other words, those who would acknowledge, in order to mourn your sin, you've got to acknowledge the fact that it's there. Like you've got to call it what it is and acknowledge that it's there and be grieved over it and come before God and agree with God, yes, this is broke. there's something broken in my life that doesn't need to be medicated or celebrated, it needs to be grieved. So you come before God and God promises to those who would come before Him and acknowledge their sin and confess their sin that He would forgive them and those who are mourners are promised the comfort of God's forgiveness in their lives. See, those who medicate their sin, they're going to continue down that road and it's going to have diminishing returns over the course of their life until they find themselves in addiction and bondage. And those who celebrate this, their sin are going to continue down that road over the course of their life and they're going to find themselves ultimately destroying themselves, whether it be in this life or the next. But those who mourn it, the very comfort and presence of God moves in close to assure us of God's grace and His forgiveness, of His lavish love that is for all of those who would come to Him and acknowledge what He says is true and right, not what they feel. But not only are they promised the comfort of God's forgiveness here and now, but they're also promised the comfort that things won't always be this way. That there's a day that's coming in which the heavens are going to part and Jesus is going to return and He's going to make war against all of His enemies and defeat all unrighteousness and injustice in this world. And He's going to renew and restore everything. Everything's going to be made new. All the sad things will come untrue. All the broken things will be mended. Everything will be made new. And for those who would acknowledge the fact that this world is not the way that it's supposed to be, and they would come before God in humility and brokenness. They have the comfort of knowing that one day God's going to fix it all. Fix it all. And that one day God will restore all the years, even in your life, that the locust has been. Jesus says the path to comfort is not celebration or medication, but mourning. And some of you come in the room this morning looking for comfort. And if that's you, if that's you, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want, you to, I want to encourage you to agree with God about your spiritual condition. And that you would press into Him and find Jesus to promise you forgiveness and one day healing. But not only does God say that, Jesus said that we come to God as 
mourners, but he says we come as hungry mourners. Right? In verse 6, Jesus says, not only are blessed are those who mourn, but he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We come as hungry mourners. Listen, every, Jesus isn't speaking about a physical appetite here, but a spiritual appetite in the context of what he's talking about. And we all know what it is to hunger for something, don't we? Anybody ever, maybe your stomach's growling right now. <laughs> and, you're, and you're thinking right now, salivating a little bit as you think about where you're going to go for lunch or the roast that you have in the crock pot at home. Right? Just let me know where your address is and I'll be happy to come help you with that. But we all know what it is to have an appetite. We all know what it is to hunger, don't we? And Jesus is speaking about a, a spiritual thirst and a spiritual hunger. In other words, there's some things that you want and you think that if you could get them, they would make you happy. It would make you happy. Listen, there's in some individuals who hunger and thirst for romantic relationships. There are some individuals who hunger and thirst for deep, lasting friendships. There are some individuals who hunger and thirst for flourishing careers or material possessions. Some individuals who hunger and thirst for the approval of people or control over their circumstances. We all know what it is to hunger and to thirst. But Jesus says, in order to be satisfied, you've got to hunger and thirst for the right things. Like, how do you know what you're hungering and thirsting for? If you fill in these blanks, right? If you say, I will be satisfied when or with. That's what you're hungering for. Whatever you fill in those blanks with, I will be satisfied when or I will be satisfied with, that's what you're hungering and thirsting for. And Jesus says, in order to find the satisfaction that he promises, that you have to hunger and thirst for the right things. And Jesus says that you hunger and thirst, blessed are those hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now righteousness in the Bible has several different meanings. It can mean a legal righteousness. In other words, you're standing before God. Not anything that you've done, but what Jesus has done in your place. That God, in His grace, sent His Son to live in your place and to die in your place. That He lived the life of perfection that we should have lived and He died the death in our place as our substitute that we deserve to die. And that through faith that God counts us as righteous, standing before Him in blamelessness, in holiness, as He looks at us through the lens of Jesus at the cross. That's legal righteousness, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Because there's another kind of righteousness. It's a moral righteousness. A practical, not a positional righteousness, but a practical righteousness. In other words, a righteousness that gets fleshed out in your everyday life and activities and conduct and behavior. So that you begin to think the thoughts of God after Him. You begin to desire the desires of God after Him. That what God rejoices in, you would rejoice in. That what God rejects, that you would reject. That what pleases God would please you. So that in your attitudes, in your motives, in your words, in your decisions, in your actions, in your behavior, in your conduct, there would be righteousness that would be flowing out of that. That's what Jesus is saying here, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to think the thoughts after, of God after Him, to desire the desires of God after Him, to rejoice in what He rejoices and reject what He rejects, all of your life being formed into the image of Christ. He says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied but listen hungering for righteousness is absolutely upside down it's completely counterintuitive and countercultural in a culture that doesn't hunger for righteousness but hungers for happiness that hungers for happiness there's a big difference our culture and many in our church they don't hunger for righteousness but happiness 
One British pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I've cited him several times the last few weeks, but he said this. He said, the great tragedy of the world is that though it gives itself to seek for happiness, it seems to be able never to find it. We are not to hunger and thirst after happiness, but that is what most people are doing, he says. We put happiness as the one thing that we desire, and thus we always miss it. It always eludes us. According to the scriptures, happiness is never something that should be sought directly. It is always something that results from seeking something else. Seeking something else. Listen, in the summer of 2011, the Atlantic Magazine published an article. It was by a a therapist and author named Lori Gottlieb, and it was entitled, How to Land Your Kid in Therapy. It's a great title, right? Right? How to land your kid in therapy. And in that article, basically what she does is she begins to analyze and unpack the culture in which we live of kind of helicopter parenting where everything that you're doing for your child is to make it exciting and engaging. Everything is supposed to be spectacular and over the top. Right? You want to, want to save them from any discomfort or pain and give them every joy and pleasure. And she said, what that's doing to children, essentially, is landing them on the couches of, in the offices of therapists in their 20s and 30s, because their childhood was spectacular and exciting, and everything was amazing, and they become adults and realize there's some really boring things that you have to do as an adult. So they feel like something is wrong with them, because nothing, not everything's exciting and spectacular anymore. And listen to what she says about the culture in which we live. She says, nowadays, it's not enough to be happy, if you can be even happier. The American dream and the pursuit of happiness have morphed from a quest for general contentment to the idea that you must be happy at all times and in every way. All times and in every way. I'm happy. And then she cites a a lady by the name of Gretchen Rubin who wrote a book called The Happiness Project. And Gretchen Rubin went on this happiness journey for a whole year. Of, uh, where her greatest aim was to be happy. And she began to like, make purchases and organize everything in her home to where everything just made sense and all the socks were in the right drawer and all, all, the, all the, uh, the, the, the shirts were in the right place. Everything had its own proper order in her home and she traveled, did everything that she thought would make her happy. And listen to what she says. She says, I am happy, but not as happy as I should be. Not as happy as I should be. So Gottlieb goes on to ask this question, how happy should she be? And he says she wasn't, Reuben wasn't sure. She wasn't sure. And I quote, the author of the article says, she sounds exactly like some of my patients. She has two wonderful parents, a tall, dark, and handsome, and wealthy husband she loves, two healthy, delightful children, a strong network of friends, a beautiful home on the Upper East Side, a law degree from Yale, and a successful career as a freelance writer. Still, she feels, and I quote, dissatisfied that something is missing. So to counteract what she describes as her bouts of melancholy, insecurity, listlessness, and floating guilt, she goes on these happiness journeys. As I said before, she buys everything, organizes everything, does everything. And at the end of that year, this is what she says, in some ways, she writes, I made myself less happy. Happiness doesn't always make you feel happy. And then finally, the author of the article cites uh, Barry Schwartz, a professor of social theory at Swarthmore College, who says, happiness as a byproduct of living your life is a great thing, but happiness as a goal is a recipe for disaster. See, we live in a culture where we're hungering and thirsting for happiness. 
But the reason that we never find satisfaction is because we're never really sure if we could be even happier. Could I, could I be a little bit happier? So social scientists have found that an attempt to be happy through the pursuit of happiness is disastrous. And Jesus says that we don't find satisfaction through seeking happiness, but we find it through seeking righteousness. We find it through seeking righteousness. Let me break it down for you and get really practical this morning. I'll show you how this works. If you're, the great aim of your life is happiness, if that's what you're searching for, if that's what you're aiming for, if that's the deep hunger of your heart is happiness, then whenever you get married to another person who is a fallen, fractured, broken person who's been made in the image of God, who is going to sin against you and you're going to sin against them, whenever you get married and you have a spouse and that relationship starts off on this great high, Right? We all, hopefully most of us remember those days. Great highs, right? On the mountaintops. But then eventually comes some of the troughs and the valleys in life. And listen, whenever you begin to come down that slope and you enter into a valley or into a trough and the great aim of your life is happiness and there's, there's challenges now in the marriage and in the relationship, what do you do? You pull the ripcord because you think there's somebody else out there who can make you even happier. I'm not happy anymore. I'm going to search for happiness. And the way to find happiness is not by cultivating character, but by changing my circumstances. So if I change spouses, then I can find happiness. Do you see how that works? That's the great aim of your life. But on the flip side, those who are aiming at righteousness with their lives, whenever they come down the hill, because they will, okay? Aiming at righteousness and hungering for righteousness doesn't exempt you from challenging difficult seasons in your marriage or in your relationship. But when they come down the hill, you know what they do? They get on their knees before God and they say, God, would you, would you cultivate in me the patience and the kindness to continue to love and serve them well? You don't get on your knees and say, God, change my husband, right? Or change my wife. You might be praying for certain things in their life, but you say, God, change me. Would you cultivate in me the character to be long-suffering, to be patient, to be kind, even whenever they're cruel at times? God, would you do that in me? So when you're aiming at happiness, you will constantly change your circumstances to make yourself more happy. But when you're aiming at righteousness, then you will ride things out, asking God to cultivate in you character. Big difference, isn't there? And Jesus says it's those who are aiming at righteousness who will be satisfied. But here's the question. How will we be satisfied? What kind of satisfaction is that? Here it is. Most of us think that we find happiness, we'll find satisfaction. But Jesus says you aim at righteousness and you'll get satisfaction. And here's why Jesus promises us that. It's because for those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, that God is pleased to give it. If that's the deep hunger of your heart, God is delighted to deliver that. Do you find yourself within yourself this thirst after patience and purity? God is pleased to cultivate that in you. Do you find in yourself a hunger for gentleness and generosity? God delights to make you into that kind of person. See, the righteousness after which we are thirsting and hungering, God delights to deliver it. And listen, while sin has diminishing returns in our lives, righteousness has unlimited returns in our life. Let me, let me show it to you this way, right? Righteousness is kind of like fitness. Okay? It's kind of like fitness. Now listen, 
this is what I've heard, right? I'm, I'm a little bit of a fitness binger, okay? And so, like, I'll, I'll go on these streaks where, like, I'm eating well and I'm exercising, and then I just kind of fall off the wagon and I eat hamburgers every day and sit on the couch, right? And so, kind of a little bit of a binger there, but what, what I've heard is that whenever you eat well, you, uh, you, you watch your cal- caloric intake and the kinds of foods that you're taking in and you exercise regularly, right? things begin to change in you, right? Physiologically, you begin to flush out toxins in your body and other healthy chemicals begin to increase in your body. And so your mood changes, your perspective changes. You begin to feel different whenever you eat well and exercise regularly. So fitness, fitness gives birth to a desire for greater levels of fitness, right? So there's this compounding effect that it has in your life. And so that whenever somebody rolls in on Sunday morning with this white cardboard box and they open it up and inside are these little circles with the holes cut out in the middle, a fried batter drizzled in sugary sweetness called glaze and maybe even having little confections sprinkled on top and they offer you a donut. You could say no to one or even to the other 11 that you would normally eat. Why? Why? Because while it may still taste good going down, you don't like the way that it makes you feel afterwards right because there's a difference between eating salad and pizza and how you feel afterwards see greater levels of fitness give birth to a desire for and delight in even greater levels of fitness and that's the way that righteousness works in your life as well when you're hungering after righteousness and you begin, there begins to be these, this, it begins to change the way that you process and view life. It begins to change the way that you feel. You're like, I don't like the way that I feel when I live that way any longer. And those deeper desires of, for righteousness give birth to even deeper desires for righteousness and hungers for righteousness as, as it continues to compound in your life. You see, that's totally opposite of the way that sin works in your life, right? Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews speaks of the, the, the fleeting pleasures of sin. Because sin gives, has diminishing returns, right? So if you sin on Monday, and there's this thrill and this excitement in that activity, then on Tuesday you do the same thing, there's not as quite the level of thrill. Wednesday, a different level. Thursday, it diminishes even further. Friday, it diminishes even further. But righteousness works the other way around. As you engage in righteousness, there is increasing capacities for more and more and more and more satisfaction, not less and less and less and less satisfaction. And so when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He's saying the satisfaction that you're seeking is not found in you pursuing your happiness, but it's found in you pursuing righteousness. And listen, let me just say this before we go on. Jesus is not, he's not just some dude, right? He's not just some dude who shows up as like the occasional guest on The View every once in a while. Has a few opinions, kind of gives them, and then he kind of steps off. Jesus is not a daytime talk show host, right? It's not like Steve Harvey comes on at two, Jesus comes on at three, right? And everybody stands around the office the next day going like, dude, did you hear what Jesus said at three yesterday, man? Blew my mind. He's not just some dude with opinions, He is the God through whom all things were made, for whom all things were made, and by whom all things were made. So he's an expert on everything. And he says, if you want satisfaction, you don't find it by chasing after happiness, but you find it by hungering after righteousness. Is that the deep hunger of your heart this morning? Let me, 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 as as we close this morning, I want to give you two things, real practical. Right? 
about how you become the kind of individual who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. So you mourn your sin, your brokenness, but you hunger after righteousness. Two things. The first one is this. is Where does this kind of hunger come from? And the, the, the place this hunger comes from, listen, new hungers always come from a new heart. A new heart always bring with them, brings with it a new hunger. Listen, the, the word the, the New Testament uses to describe, the theologians use to describe the way this takes place is they, when they talk about us coming to faith in Jesus, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's called regeneration. As God plants with it, he does a heart transplant. That's how the Old Testament describes it. In Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 36, God's speaking to his people and listen to how he describes the work that he's going to do for his name's sake, for his glory. Listen to what he says in Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 24. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your unrighteousness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I, verse 26, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God says to his people in the Old Testament, he says, listen, here's what I'm about to do. For my name's sake and my glory, not your own, I'm going to give you a heart transplant. I'm going to take out the heart of stone that is rebellious and runs away from me. I'm going to transplant it with a heart of flesh. And I'm going to place my spirit within you. In other words, one that's, one that's soft and malleable and can be molded. And I'm going to place my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways. Now, God doesn't cause us to walk in our, His ways by picking up the remote control in heaven, right? And be pushing the, the on button and then using the joystick to control us robotically. That's not what, how God causes us to walk in His ways. He causes us to walk in His ways by placing His Spirit within us and birthing within us new desires and new hungers. So the things which used to taste good to us, they may still taste good for a short period of time, but we realize this is destructive in my life. I'm filling my body with toxins. I don't like the way that I feel. So I'm going to pursue right, hunger after righteousness. A new heart gives rise to new hungers. And so some of you this morning, if you're sitting there and you go, man, I, I, don't, I don't know that I have ever really hungered after righteousness. I've always been chasing after happiness, but I don't know if I've really ever hungered after righteousness. The problem may be is that you may have never, God may have never given you a new heart. And if that's you this morning, I want you to know that this morning, he would, he, he would be pleased to do so. He would be pleased to do so. But if you would come to the end of yourself and recognize your poverty of spirit, you have nothing to offer to Him. He would be broken over the condition of your own soul and of your own life. And if you would no longer be impressed by yourself, coming before God, trying to make deals with Him, but you would simply come before God on your knees and saying, God, would you cleanse and forgive me? that He will be pleased to take out your heart of stone and plant within you a heart of flesh and give you new desires and new hungers and new thirsts. That if you would trust in Jesus, come to Him by faith, that God would be pleased to do that. But not only do these new hungers come from a new heart, but secondly, to cultivate these new hungers, you fast from unrighteousness and you feast on righteousness. So you begin to say no to the things 
begin to say no to those things, that, to, to your self-centeredness, to your self-focusedness, to your self-directedness. You begin to say no to the lust and to the anger and to the bitterness and to the pride. You begin to say no to the hatred and the malice thoughts. You begin to fast from unrighteousness and feast on righteousness. Listen, for, for instance, for some of us in the room this morning, we need to begin to fast from secrecy and hypocrisy and feast on honesty and authenticity. See, for some of us, the first step in coming and in, in cultivating those, that new appetite that God's planted within us is for us not only to be honest with God about our sin, but honest with someone else. Sometimes we need to step into biblical community in a life group here at Redeemer or somewhere else, get around other believers that you're engaging with about the true condition of your heart and your soul and move from secrecy and hypocrisy to authenticity and honesty about where you are. Some of you, that's the first step to begin to fast from unrighteousness and continue to hide in the dark and feast on righteousness and come into the light. In addition, for some of us in the room, we need to fast from perversion and begin to feast on purity. From the images that we're filling our minds with, we need to begin to go to war against those images with images from the Scriptures. So every time a thought begins to pop up that would take our mind down a trail that we know would be dishonoring to God and destructive to us, that we would go to war with it from images from the Scriptures and we would think about Jesus who knew no sin, who became sin for us so that we in Him might become the righteousness of God. We go to war image for image in our minds and in our hearts. Feast on purity and fast from perversion. Some of us need to fast from apathy and feast on loyalty. Some of us need to fast from consuming and begin to feast on contributing. Listen, let me, as, I, as I close this morning, let me give you just one way that's been practical in my life. There was a season in my life in which I feasted on greed and fasted from generosity. Everything that I bought was for myself. I only thought about myself. I only thought about how it was going to benefit me. I only thought about making purchases that I would be able to enjoy. But listen, here's, here's what I'll say. is that when, I, when God brought conviction in my life over that, and I began to take a step toward righteousness and began to take what He's called to generosity seriously, here's what I found. Is that, the, that, the, that the, while, while the, the greed in my life had ever diminishing returns right? right you know what it's like to buy that new toy and then like man it's awesome for like three days and then day four you're like what's next what, where's the upgrade right because this 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 only thrilled me for a couple of days and so i had diminishing returns but when i began to move toward god's call to generosity what i found is there was ever increasing returns in my life there so that now at whatever level i'm giving stuff away i want to give away even more I want to find even greater joy there. And so for me, as I began to fast from greed and feast on generosity, I found the deep satisfaction that my heart was hungering for. And some of you may be in the same place this morning. Some of you may have come in looking for comfort, and I want you to know that you can't find it medicating or celebrating your sin, but only mourning it only grieving over it because there's, that's where Jesus meets you. That's where he meets you with the forgiveness, the promise of forgiveness and the promise of renewal. 
Some of you may come in this morning looking for satisfaction. You've been looking for it in happiness. But I want you to know Jesus says you look for it in righteousness. And you will be satisfied. I'm going to give you a moment to pray this morning. Todd is going to come and lead us in song as we reflect on what God has said to us together. And as you pray, maybe God would lead you to come before Him in brokenness over your sin. And as I do, as you do, I want you to know that He's ready to meet you like the father who receives the prodigal home with arms extended wide to comfort and love you. If you're fighting and wrestling through addictions and bondages, I want you to know that no amount of medication or celebration will alleviate that or bring you the comfort that you want. But if you would come before God this morning trusting in Jesus, saying, this is where I am and who I am, God. He will meet you in that. And this morning, might you even begin to pray for God to awaken a hunger in your heart, not for happiness, but for righteousness.